Hi there, welcome to the Second Adolescence Podcast. Here, we talk about all things queer healing and second adolescence. So what is second adolescence, you might ask? Second adolescence is a sort of developmental life stage queer people navigate in our post-coming out adult years after growing up within an anti-queer world. For many, second adolescence is about healing the wounds of our younger queer selves, gaining the experiences they missed out on, and unlocking what it means for us to exist as our most free and true selves. I am your host, Adam James Cohen, psychotherapist and human who went through his own second adolescence. On this week's episode, we have Noris Chavarria. Noris is someone who has dedicated his adult life to serving others, particularly LGBTQ youth through his work in the nonprofit sector. And today, he's further contributing to our community by sharing his own story with us. On this episode, he shares about growing up in Queens, New York with his mother who had immigrated from El Salvador and yeah, about his whole journey navigating boyhood, adolescence and adulthood within our culture of heteronormativity and white supremacy and what it's been like as a queer man of color. He was so generous with his story and I'm so grateful he wanted to contribute to this work. And I really hope you enjoy listening on in. And as always, I want to invite you as a listener to listen with open curiosity, knowing that each of our stories are unique and different. You might hear some guests share things that really differ from what you went through, whereas you might hear other people say things that absolutely give voice to what you went through or are currently going through. And I really do hope that all of this happens and that together we can continue growing and expanding our awareness of what life and queerness and healing can be for folks. If after the show you want to connect further, feel free to head on over to secondadolescencepod.com for show notes and more, or connect with the show on Instagram at, at secondadolescencepod. All right, enough for me for now. Welcome to the conversation. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the Second Adolescence Podcast. And before going anywhere, I like to first let the guests kind of introduce themselves briefly just to give a little context to who the person is behind the voice. You know, the who are you question is an impossible one to answer in just a couple <laughs> sentences, but just a general mini intro to who you are, just so listeners have a little bit of a sense before we dive in. My name is Norris Chavarria. I currently live in San Francisco, though I am originally from New York City. And I've been a nonprofit person all my life, kind of thing. I'll share a little bit more as we go along how that fits in. Cool. That's for, for now. Yeah. You, when you say nonprofit person all your life, it sounds like the work you do in the world is in the nonprofit sphere. What does that look like for you? Yeah. So since graduating college, actually, I've been working in nonprofit pretty much my whole life without taking a breath, you know, fresh air for myself. The idea of just like giving back. As soon as I graduated college, I've kind of got a job in a nonprofit world doing counseling to like young LGBT youth, like running a runaway youth kind of place, drop-in mm. center. And my heart, you know, was just like there. Also my upbringing, just like church, my mom taking me to church. It's just been like instilled in me. And mm. so, you know, now later in life, I've kind of come out of that because it's also like a machine. That's been my most recent <laughs> realization of the nonprofit world. Mm. Yeah, I mean, gosh, I feel like that's a whole other conversation I want to talk with you about, just like navigating the nonprofit world, particularly and the systems we have in place for it and and not and the obstacles you have to jump through. It's a machine. I can understand that. I guess like when you say it's a machine, what do you mean by that right now? That the mission is never going to be accomplished kind of thing. 
it for me, it's like deeper because I felt like I was part of that machine and not a human. And that was like the straw that broke the camel's back in my most recent job place where they didn't acknowledge all parts of me and they discriminated against me, actually. That just like took the blinders off, you know, where I could still do good for people by myself. I don't necessarily have to work in the system, you know, kind of thing that you're, you're talking about. Totally. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that you had that experience. That sucks. It's particularly when like you're there because it sounds like you want to help. And that's the situation that took my blinders off. Although I'm also mm-hmm. not saying that, you know, it didn't happen in other instances, mm-hmm. but this one was just like all parts of me were just ignored wow. this place. And then it was just like, wow, your mission is like above me as an employee, you know, I'm the money guy. I'm the fundraiser. And also that role being that link of funders, donors, I feel played, you know, like I was uh-huh. a puppet that way. You know, I'm thankful that I learned my lesson mm. and that I, you know, I have a different vision now. So. Whoa. Okay. Gosh. Okay. I want to, I want to hear more <laughs> about your work in the nonprofit sphere before, but I also want to dive into you and your story and also start by framing us in yeah, this is a conversation and a dialogue around queerness. And in the Second Adolescence podcast, we really also center on this notion of second adolescence. And I guess when you first heard that phrase, what came to mind for you? What resonated? What questions popped up? Kind of what was your experience of hearing that phrase, second adolescence? First thing that I kind of popped in my head is like, how nice <laughs> to like have a second one, right? Have a second chance that way. Mm. Uh, to have that ability to try to at least, you know, live that adolescence, that free spirit. Mm. So that that's what the first thing that came to mind. Um, mm. Personally, as I shared a little bit about work journey, I feel like I'm in my third or this is my, it's a weird f- first, second kind of thing. Mm. I think that like my first adolescence was non-existent, was non-existent. My mom is a, an immigrant from El Salvador and she had me at a very young age. She came to the country when she was like 15. She had me at 17. She became widowed two years like later. I was born in LA and then she, she brought myself and her to Queens, New York, which is where I say I'm from, I'm from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. My first adolescence was all just school, you know, just like focused on school because my mom, her situation, my mom also was like a survivor of domestic violence and I saw it. Uh, so then that was like my adolescence, you know, I was like, okay, mm-hmm. how do we get us out of here? How do I support her? How do I navigate the systems, you know, knowing mm. English, my mom wasn't fluent in English back then. So that's like my first kind of, or non-existent uh, adolescent. And then also in school, being bullied. I used to love playing hopscotch. I was also like the nerd person winning the science fairs. Again, very like school focused kind of thing. So it's very just like responsibilities, responsibilities, responsibilities. You know, mm. I was mm. really good in school, so it wasn't like a chore, you know, but I wasn't a kid. I wasn't able to like really experience the kid thing, especially not the gay stuff or the queer stuff, you know? Yeah. The neighborhood where I grew up in um, is Black, Latino, immigrant. This is very like literal in New York City, you know, the fire hydrants are open and you kind of see the kids kind of play in the street. That was mm. like where I grew up. Mm. Uh, so I played ball, more of a masculine type sports, which was like fine, you know, kind of thing. Mm. sexuality and, gen- and you know gender expression that really wasn't a thing for me back then mm. but it, you know certain aspects of like the bullying uh, the half scotch being the nerd in the class um, also from neighbors or family members distant that lived in the neighborhood they would say like oh he's the smart one you know with a slight you know 
change in tone that way. Mm. My mom also signed me up for like basketball, like very, those kind of sports. I'm a shorty. I've always been a shorty. <laughs> uh, so I did play guard, I believe. Um, but that wasn't for me. You know, that was just like mm. my mom trying to push very male centered kind of activity. Uh. Yeah, I have a couple of questions. I want to jump in here. First off, I'm so appreciative you're coming on and beginning to share your story. I feel like this is going to be such an important one to hear. Sounds like a couple of things I'm hearing is you mentioned, yeah, not even getting an adolescence, meaning like you had to be the leader in your family, it sounds like, and grow up. And like, it sounds like you placed a lot of responsibility on yourself to not be the same carefree kid that was around you. You were really determined to, to do well in school to kind of looking at the future, trying to help out you and your mom. Were you aware of other kids and other people in adolescence who were living a different life than you? And do you remember kind of what your observations were of that? What your thoughts were of that? Well, yeah, I do. Um, mm. I didn't know the internal mechanics, right? Mm. But I knew that they mostly had a mother and father mm. and other siblings. Mm. That was for me like the distinguishing factor. And then also kind of knowing that I was well, I don't want to say queer, right? Because I, I didn't know that at the time. Mm. Uh, but knowing that I did like scot- hopscotch, you mm. know, and that pink was my favorite color. But then I felt that family members in my neighborhood would get that as like the feminine thing. Then it would be like, oh, because he doesn't have a father. Mm. Like that, that's what it was like attributed to. Mm. So I didn't lack anything. But the observations that I did see was like, oh, they have a family. They're different. You know, that's where they have a house. That's where they have a backyard, that kind of situation. Mm. That was just like there, playing with everyone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And yeah, you mentioned not being aware of queerness at the time, but just finding yourself, yeah, you gravitated towards the color pink and hopscotch and sounds like some of these more traditionally masculine activities that you're placed in wasn't necessarily a place that you felt fully aligned with. And I'm curious, like, yeah, what do you remember about, like, messaging you remember about what it meant to be queer, what it meant to be gay? Like, what, growing up, like, what were your awareness around that piece and also gender roles and all that? Yeah. You know, I was actually just typing up some notes for this Mm. uh, to kind of, you know, bring it in. And I think a couple of instances around, like, sexuality and and gay not being good, Mm. pretty much, uh, I love my godfather who passed and we just hang out with him, my cousin. He would take us to like a Six Flags. I remember growing up because we lived in the six-story building mm-hmm. and I went up to the fifth floor and I used to play with my cousin. This is one time that my godfather was in the living room. My cousin was in the bathtub. Uh, I was outside. We were playing some kind of like battleship. And I remember my godfather yelling like, uh, boys don't do that or... Uh, faggot, some, something with the word faggots in it. Mm. I didn't know what a faggot was back then, you know. Kind of mm-hmm. thing. But it sounded like it was bad. Mm. So, uh, you know, it was like, oh, we're, I guess we're just playing. And then I went to the living room, you know, kind of like, okay, I guess I didn't know what the word was, but it sounded bad, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that instance. There are many instances, actually. Maybe like in high school, I used to go to the village with my best friend at the time. Mm. And we'd like, not sneak out, but we'd like go out and not tell our parents where, or we'd tag team, like tell them this kind of thing. And I remember telling my mom that I went to Christopher Street. And my mom, you know, she was a housekeeper at the time. And this is in the 90s or so. So like AIDS, HIV and stuff like that. And I remember her telling me that she also got off at that street. And that to her, it seemed like the end of the world. Mm. You know, it's very gay, there's HIV, be very careful. 
with his people, just like the us and them kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, and so, again, that sexuality, that wasn't like my priority, but, you know, those are subtle hints, uh, or not so subtle hints, that kind of shape, like, okay, well, I guess I shouldn't do that. Mm. Like, you know, that shame and guilt kind of, I think, developed. Totally. Because, yeah, at the time, were you noticing or aware of any kind of queerness within you? Or what was happening at that age? Yeah. So in high school, I definitely had some kind of inkling or I went to a high school that I had to take a 30-minute bus ride from because it's, you know, like a science or whatever high school. Very white, very, um, well, white and Asian, the majority of the students. And then the colored, the other colored kids because Asian, you know. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that would travel in the bus. Um, and those are the same kids in my neighborhood, which I would have to be more mask, you know, mm. kind of thing. Or, but in school, it was sort of safer place, you know, to kind of you know navigate that way. Mm. But I still saw a label attached to it, and that's what kind of kept me away from, uh, from like joining the clubs and all of that. Mm. And the whole identity thing, you know, I, I was I was just there to go to school. Yeah, you know, I was just there to go to school, not to hang out with my neighborhood kids or like the kids at school. Mm. I was just for the purpose of school. Mm. So no fun, no anything like right. that. Right. Right. Yeah, I hear you kind of keep saying that your priority was to be a student. So it makes me, in that I also hear kind of, uh, there were things that you can recognize, ooh, missed out on, things you missed out on. And I guess, yeah, I'm curious, like what, if you could speak more to that, of of what felt like it was missed out on. Um, I mean, being, you know, queer as fuck and not caring, mm. um, you know, I think that, I just like missed out on the tools that maybe I could have shared with my mom. I don't, actually, I don't know if the school actually had the tools because mm. uh, I think they would have to be culturally you know, uh, relevant. Mm. Like tools around being queer and- mm-hmm. Like P-flags. Yep, totally, you know, resources, yep. And mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, I see youth now in, well, I'm in San Francisco, which is also very different mm-hmm. um, than where I grew up. Mm. I see youth just like purple hair, red hair, right. that, that expression part, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel like I missed out on that. Mm-hmm. I, miss, I think now that I think about like arts, mm-hmm. I'm a creative person. And I think in junior high school, going back, you know, a school thing, we were able to take art classes or music classes. They're like different ones. And I remember our art teacher passed and he was gay. Mm. You know, and I was just like, oh, yes, painting, drawing. Mm. Um, but at home, that's not a job, you know, that's not like a thing. So, mm. so just like that creative side, you know, developing that creative side and just expression. Mm. Well, that's what I missed out on uh-huh. at that age, because now I'm doing it. Uh-huh. Totally, totally. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like ultimately there, though it's, of course, sad to look back. And it can bring up a lot of either anger, grief, lots of different things to look back and see what we didn't get to do, what we didn't get to have access to, what parts of ourselves we didn't get to kind of explore. It is then the work kind of in second adolescence, in our own journeys to be able to bring to life those and to let ourselves explore. And so we'll, yeah, I'm curious to hear what your journey was there, but let me go jump back into your timeline because, okay, it sounds like you were driven in high school to go to college. That was the next step. Like, what was that next chapter? So I went to school in Boston and I went to Tufts, which had their own queer kind of conference in the, in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. 
but I still navigated in Latino spaces, mm. you know. The good thing, though, was that I was away from home. Mm. So that distance definitely helped me. Um, just like, you know, try a little bit of this, try a little bit of that. Mm. Um, so I did have relationships in college. Mm. Um, and one thing that's like, that I thought was great for me was the LGBT Center was on the second floor and the Latino Center was on the first floor. Huh. The same building. Mm. So it was kind of like, hey, uh, you know, yeah, like uh, maybe I'll be going there in an hour. You know, mm. it was safe that way. That was in the same building. Yes, and that was like the first time that I was like, wow, like coexistence, mm. like in my face. Wow, you know? like um, queerness and being Latino. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh-huh. or coexistence of you know the queer people were mostly white mm. at in college. Mm. The coexistence of those two labeled subsets, I guess. Mm. Mm-hmm. Towards the end of college, there was a queer PSC mm. group. But yeah, I think in college, the thing that I struggled with was the labels. Because gay to me meant like super gay white, mm. you know, mm. always. And I didn't want to be labeled that way. But I also didn't have any other role models, right? That was the only thing that uh, I saw media. Right. I didn't really have like a queer man of color like, role model. Right. Yeah. So what do you remember kind of, because it sounds like you were starting to explore experiences with men in college, beginning to invite queerness into your identity. But yeah, at that time, you're also not seeing other queer men who look like you. There's everyone talking about gay, 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 but you're seeing that really as this like, sounds like very white, very cis white label. And so not feeling like... That's not me. Like, what was it like? What was going on for you in terms of like making sense of identity at that time? I had one of the best eye-opening experiences. My first year, I used, everyone kind of receives like a Latino a peer advisor your freshman year. And I got one when I was in freshman. And I didn't want to be labeled as Latino in that moment. Mm. I didn't even want any, you know, I just wanted to like be and navigate. Mm. And so this woman, you know, she's like, hey, these are the sort, the resources we have. We could do this, that. I was pre-med at the time. Mm. And she, I think she was also. And I kind of just like ignored that side and just like went to parties, all that stuff. My second year, I thought of like, okay, what can I do to give back? I took on that same role <laughs> of this woman who's hounding me down, mm. um, which is interesting. And then... So we had a whole group, right, Mm. of Latinos do this, like, training together, mentoring program. And I remember going into a car to, like, a buffet place for, like, a lunch break. And we stuffed, I don't know how many people were in the car, and playing loud music, you know. It was, like, one of those moments where I was like, wow, this this is, like, me. Mm. You know, loud music, we're having fun. Mm. Like, it it allowed me to step out of that only student role to at least express a little bit more of my identity yeah and i think in that group i felt that group was safe Mm. you know so i felt like if i said anything about my sexuality even though i wouldn't at that point Mm. um it'd be okay Mm. like to be me and just share whatever Mm. um that was such a i mean i remember i always remember that uh Cause it was like loud music and it's a car. Well, and it's like, this is how we do. This is me. Mm. Like, this is, this is great. You know, that like shame and everything uh, kind of went out the window. 
yeah, and then from then on, I just like continued to grow, you know. And the fact that second floor and the bottom floor happened to be, you know, in that same house, both groups, it allowed me a little bit more space to kind of like, oh, okay, I see what they're doing today. Mm, wow. Yeah, I mean, the word free is popping up for me, meaning like you just felt more free to be you and to like uncover you in in those spaces and with that group. Wow. And yes, yeah, so you also mentioned you weren't telling people or sharing as much about your queerness at that time. It sounds like, like what was your next step in that own process of both getting more clarity around your identity, but also starting to let more people into your identity as being queer? I think my sophomore year, I went to my best friend's like spring fling mm. type thing at a different college at Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. So that was a whole new, like, Totally. You know, we went to parties and then we both parted ways. She was worried about me. Mm. And, you know, I came back and I had hooked up with somebody. Mm. And it was the first time I was like, yeah, it was a guy. And I don't don't think she was surprised, but Mm. it was just, oh, I like what I like. Mm. Because the the label thing. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. I was like, I like what I like. Um, That was my sophomore year. Mm. And I went abroad my junior year. I lived in Chile, in Santiago, Mm -hmm. and no one knew me there. (laughs) No one knew me there. Mm. So I just, that was like a very big playground for me, Uh where the way that people perceived me in Chile was white, Mm. which I didn't experience in the States. I don't experience in the States. Mm. So nothing else mattered, you know? Like, I could be that white in this weird context, but I could be like, just do my own thing. No one's bugging me. There's like no pressures of other things. Mm. So I was able to navigate different spaces, just like be me and also be anonymous, right? Mm. I mean, I was there for a year, but just have no like attachments, I guess, to places and just experiment here and there. Mm. It's the gay.com era. So the chat rooms Mm -hmm. were very popular. Mm -hmm. So that's how I kind of like met people. Yeah. So that was just like a experience to... Yeah, not only outside, you know, three hours from home, mm. but like a whole different continent. Yeah. Where I was perceived as white and mm. navigating to other pressures didn't necessarily affect me that much. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm so curious. I feel like there's probably so much in that experience of being perceived more as white and kind of how other people interacted with you because of that. Like, I feel like that's a very complex thing, but it also sounds like what was happening is you felt more freedom to let yourself explore and more, you felt more safety in letting yourself explore. Is that, was that related to being perceived as white? Well, it's the privilege, Mm. right? I think it's a privilege thing Mm -hmm. where the privilege of not worrying, Mm. you know, what others think about you. Mm. Yeah. Like in the States, I, not that I worry, but I know that people perceive me as something else Mm. or something first. And then, you know, Mm. and over there, I was just like, anyone yeah uh-huh like the privilege of just being whoever you are not, not nobody like labeling you mm. latino or this or that mm. um i was just able to be me and do my things publicly or not publicly uh-huh yeah and you mentioned yeah a lot of exploration happening sounds like that was like a sexual exploration happening maybe relationship exploration like what was happening in that exploration sounds like it started at tufts but then yeah really expanded a lot when you were in Chile. What, and feel free to share as little or, or as much about that, but 
Yeah, so gay.com, mm-hmm. you know, back those days in the chat yeah. rooms. Um, I definitely explored sexually. I did a lot of that. Mm. And I did have a relationship with a local, someone from Santiago. Mm. And I met his family, mm. which was like interesting because mm. I, don't, I don't even know where my mom would be. And she's still struggling a little bit. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is nice. Like, this can happen. Mm. Not that it... Not this can happen. This is happening, you know, because I know it could happen. But I was like, wow, she acknowledges me. Mm. His parents acknowledge me. Mm. You know, I stayed with them. Mm. I went on trips with him. But it was just like, wow. Oh. I didn't have to think about, like, what are they going to say? What are they, gonna, you know, that whole. Yeah. Oh, like I can be accepted. Because, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah, in your own world of people, whether your mom or people in your own personal relationships, what was acceptance like at that point? And were you out at that point? Or what was your journey of, of sharing your identity, if you did? So I came out to my mom, I think, uh, my senior fall. Mm. So when I came back from Chile, mm. I came out to my mom. And I wrote her a letter. And I said, you know, this is who I am. I'm gay. Please don't call me uh, for the next two weeks. Because mm. I'm going to this conference. Uh, What's a creating change mm. uh, at the time? Mm. And I knew I just wanted to have fun there, you know? Mm. And she called me the next day. The letter somehow got there, like, right away. And this is, like, snail mail. This is, like, pre-email. So I wrote her letter. I sent it to her, expecting her to get it two days later. But she got it the following day. Mm. She calls me and from a private number. Um, And I remember just being like, hello, I had a clamshell, Motorola Mm. phone. Mm -hmm. And she's like... Notice, it's okay. I still love you. And I hung up the phone. Mm. I didn't even like respond. Oh. I hung up the phone because I was like, I don't, I'm about to go to this conference. Please don't make me like emotional. Oh. Oh. <laughs> and then the follow up to that was I went home for Thanksgiving and I brought a girlfriend of mine, a girlfriend, not someone I was dating, mm-hmm. but just a girl and a friend. And she, my mom took me to the side as she said, uh, so tell me, like, what do you feel when you're, like, with a man? Wow. And I, and I turned back to her to be like, well, what do you feel when you're, like, with mm. a man? Mm. And she was like, okay, so dinner's going to be ready. Uh, you know, she just, like. Oh, oh uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and that was, like, the last of it. Oh. At, and up until, fast forward, you know, a few years here in San Francisco. Mm. But um, that was, like, the end of it. And mm. we've never talked about gay things, relationship things, mm. like. Yeah, it's always been like to better yourself mm. like that. So my student conversation graduated into a, to better yourself. Uh-huh. You know? Right. Gosh, I mean, because it sounds like she was offering love and support to you at the time, but also had her own limits to which she could have that conversation then. And which can be complicated for the person on your end of things. Yeah. What happened next? So you, you come out to your mom after Chile, then what? Where does your story flow from there? Um, so I stayed in Boston because I, I had to find a job. I got to explore a little bit more in Boston. Mm. Um, that's when I got that first job in the nonprofit world, mm. um, working with runaway and homeless LGBT youth. Mm. And I kind of just stuck around in those nonprofits. So LGBT youth, HIV, mm mental health, just pretty much in that circle. Mm. Then I realized that Boston wasn't for me because mm. um, it's very white. 
moved back to New York, mm. stay in the same job kind of thing, mm. uh, doing HIV testing, counseling. Mm. And what pulled you to that work? What made you want to do this work? I think the nonprofit logistic giving back, I think that worked because I felt safe mm. in those communities. Mm. So the LGBT youth, they were youth of color. Mm-hmm. And then worked at Fenway for a while. Mm. And it was uh, a men of color group. So still within, you know, that. Yeah. And yeah, I just felt like a sense of responsibility to the community. Mm. And I was good at my job. So, you know, talking to people and mm. stuff. The switch that I did make when I went back to New York, though, was that I didn't do direct services because now I'm in New York, you know, like talking about playground. Mm. So I didn't want that relationship to happen. Mm. Like clients seeing me out and me not having fun. So I switched into development, like marketing and development. That was like my thing. So I used to run like campaigns for HIV testing Mm. and I got to have my fun. I still hung around like my peers of color. Yeah, just, Mm. you know, Exploring New York City, like for everything. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. Cool. It sounds like yeah, you were able to find a way to put like the boundaries you wanted in place at work to allow for the separation between work you and personal life you still be able to like support the mission that you had at work that you want to contribute to, but then allowing you to to have just a little bit more space and freedom to live and be. And yeah, what did that part look like? That New York chapter of life, particularly as it pertains to further discovering and being in your queerness? I drank a lot mm. you know, with my peers. For me, it was like my 20s, pretty much, mm. just like figuring things out. Mm. Somehow I did. Yeah, I just kind of like fell into like nightlife a lot going out because those are communities, right? right. Yeah. So it wasn't like the work community. Mm. It was like just my peers. Mm. Um, so I felt like free and stuff. Mm. I will say that I think that relationship of me severing those two well, I'm learning to like put them back together mm. because I think that that caused like weird relationship things just in general. Mm. And it's like, it's only, it's in my head, the power of client and that kind of thing. Ah. So I think that I've also removed myself from certain spaces that way. Mm. That's what I'm saying. That's what I meant. Like I removed myself from certain spaces that are community mm. because of this notion that like I work for the right. community, not with the community. Right. New York City is great. So going back to Christopher Street. Mm. So but to Christopher Street, Chelsea, and I'm like, what was she talking about? Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> Wait, yeah. Okay, say more about that, about returning in adulthood to Christopher Street. And for folks who are listening who may not be familiar with New York City and Christopher Street, maybe first give a little bit, could you share a little bit more about what Christopher Street is? And then, yeah, I'm curious to hear, what was that like for you to return there after kind of first being an adolescent and kind of, discovering, being curious about it, and then now coming back as an adult. So Christopher Street is uh, where the Stonewall riots happened. Mm-hmm. Um, Silvia Rivera, it was an underground kind of club. And then the cops came and pretty much beat everyone inside of there. One of the you know key moments in the queer liberation movement. And, and now Christopher Street, or the Stonewall is a bar. Stonewall it is a bar. And there are a whole bunch of like gay bars in the mm-hmm. area. And A, this time I also went in the daytime, you know, because mm. uh, I would go with my best friend at night type. I don't know why. <laughs> so it's like a different, you can pick whatever you want, you know. Yeah. At the time, it was primarily a queer people of color <laughs> community. Mm-hmm. Now it's people with like strollers. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time when I was exploring that, you know, it was just like, wow, there's so much to pick from. And why was I afraid? You know, like that fear that my mom had instilled mm. in me. 
I, I think also because in high school, because it was like queer people of color around the Christopher Street area. When I got there, I also saw my community from where I was home, which is like Black and Latino. Mm. But I couldn't see both things together, like gay or queer Latinos or Black people. Yeah. You know, I was just like, like I was afraid too. You know, I was just like, it's dark. Mm. You know, like, what am I doing here? Mm. Oh my gosh, like, mm. am I being gay? When I was in high school, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so that's what's came to my head. But as an adult, I would, you know, join everyone, obviously, kind of thing. Yeah. Whoa. I mean, what a symbol, like, was returning to Christopher Street as an adult and getting to see queer people of color around you, getting to see this integration of your identities, both you're embodying that, but also seeing that reflected around you in this community. Like, what an incredibly powerful experience that must have been. And, you know, I think the other powerful experience is I used to go to this bar, I think it's called Chi-Chi's, and it's primarily Black community and so welcoming. Mm. You know, I'm lighter skin, so, and my friends are like, oh, just come, and like nothing. No one said anything. They're like, oh, what do you want? You know, mm. they're super nice. Mm. Um, and that's where I want to be, you know, where I was accepted for my wholeness, mm. uh, not just, you know, one aspect of things. Yeah. And what happens for you? I'm always so curious for people in these different moments where we feel, yeah, accepted for our wholeness, where we feel free, where we feel kind of like you felt first in the car with the loud music and then in those spaces, mm-hmm. like something shifts within us and something gets healed within us, something gets uncovered within us. What do you, what do you think kind of within you was either getting healed or uncovered in those moments? The healing process was like just community, right? Seeing mm-hmm. community, just being in community. Yeah. I think it was just like part of my adulthood and not listening to what my mom had kind of planted in my head, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just seeing it for myself, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So then like what happened next in your own journey as it pertains to, yeah, getting to getting you here to where you're at now, like kind of what was the next bit of time in your life? So the next bit of time, some I went to grad school, mm-hmm. then I started going into like full out philanthropy mm-hmm which is like mostly white spaces. Mm. And that was kind of my ticket to San Francisco. Oh. I ran this huge campaign called Give Out Day mm. that I started. And one of my sponsors was based here in San Francisco. Mm. And I wanted to go to California. Mm. That was like my next kind of, I want to try it out. Mm. I didn't drive at the time. So San Francisco is more logical because in New York, you know, take the subway mm. everywhere. So that was my ticket here. Mm. I had been here because my grandmother is also based here, my mom's mm. mom. And I noticed like so many differences, so many changes oh. since you know I was in high school to my time here. And I got here in 2014 mm. and I could navigate them, but it was like a different navigation. I think the same Chile experience is similar here. Mm. People perceive me lighter skin or white or whatever in certain spaces. Mm. And that's why they accept me. Mm. So San Francisco has been a great playground though also for me. Mm. Because the whole sexual expression, that has definitely been the same thing I did in Chile, but as an as a older man in my 30s, mm. it was great. Mm. Just because it's so accepting. Well, not so accepting. Let's, let me take that back. Mm. There are certain things that California or that San Francisco is known for, queer, like sexual expression and, and exploration. Mm. So it was like great for that. Mm. It was great for my body dysmorphia at the time. Mm. Devon beach here, you know, this like a 
communal changing room, shower, all that stuff. Mm. Just like sexual liberation. Mm. So it's been good that way. It's like a playground, San Francisco. Yeah. But my Latino identity and POC identity has been kind of stripped a little bit. Yeah. I feel like I've been a leader here, even though it's not where I'm from mm. as queer POC. Mm. But in certain spaces, I'm only seen for one thing. Um, yeah. And it's a currently, it's a very white city. Yes. And I live in San Francisco as opposed to Oakland, which mm. is... Uh, more POC, career POC. Mm. But I, I feel out of place now. Mm. I played, you know, played in the sandbox and everything, mm. but my peers are on that side of the bridge. And now I'm grateful for this experience, but now I want my community back, mm. you know? And that's why I'm moving back to New York. Mm. Awesome. When are you moving? This summer. I'm like still figuring out those dates uh-huh. and stuff like that, yeah. But now I feel like I don't belong here. Uh. And that's been very... It's been like very real. Oh, it was that surprising to you. And I guess like at what point kind of in your journey being here, were you kind of more and more recognizing, oh, I am either only being perceived as one thing or only my gayness is only being perceived, but not my full identity is being kind of held and acknowledged and celebrated. And I'm not finding community around me of other queer people of color. Like, what was your journey there with being in San Francisco and getting to this point now of realizing, oh, this is not my place? So I lived in a mission at first, mm-hmm. which is a very Latino place for the most part, or that's where most Latinos would be mm. uh, if they weren't displaced. It reminded me of my last apartment, Jackson Heights in Queens, you know, Latino, a little more diverse kind of thing, yeah. the food, and also my work role. My work role mm. is the money person, fundraising. So those networks are different, mm. you know, kind of thing, those connections are different. Mm. Um, I've worked at a lot of organizations, try to like fit in, mm. but I never fit in, you know. I went to, you know, my ticket here. I had a bad experience with the white women there mm. who oftentimes are dominant in the nonprofit fundraising world. So that was in a fit. Yeah. Then I've navigated Latino organizations here where I'm just thinking ahead of the curve, you know, mm. that butts heads with people just because they think I'm going to take over. I don't know mm. what it is, a power thing. Mm. The power thing and the brown scale mm. of things. Mm. So either of those, like I don't fit. You know, it's just been like a hopping. And also for me in thinking of my next job or just like my own upbringing of like stable job, have a stable job, mm. get that paid, you know, kind of thing. Mm. I've been trying to get it that way, mm. but I don't fit in mm. at all. In the culture of work, I don't know what that means, but mm. <laughs> whatever it is, mm. you know. And as I said, you know, this last place that I worked at just was, boom, that pandemic has been great for me. Mm. I was diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. Mm. So that was like a whole different experience. And everything else kind of made sense Mm. within my world that way with that diagnosis. Uh, But the pandemic, you know, I'm an only child. I lived by myself for a while. It was good for me. Mm. I liked this situation. And now with this ADHD uh, diagnosis, it makes sense. Mm. Sensitive to noise, all those things. Yeah. But it's just been good for me because I'm able to self-reflect and all the things that I've known about me are still the same things, you know, mm. and that I don't have to allow other people to try to dictate things to me mm. um, or tell me where to fit in or how to fit in. I've lost myself here mm. through work. Mm. Um, I've silenced myself here through work just because of the paycheck and, you know, rent is really expensive here. Mm. But the pandemic just like, shut everything down yeah literally and it just gave me space to realize it's okay how who i am you know Mm. all of who i am Mm. 
which I don't think would have happened because I would have continued with that machine. Yeah. And so now after kind of having this time where things have slowed down, you've kind of done all this reflection, it sounds like you've gotten more clarity around, oh, I've lost myself. I've been silenced. You're also learning more about yourself through the ADHD diagnosis and otherwise. I'm thinking about all of that happening right before now you're going to be making this move back to New York and curious, like, what are you wanting for yourself to take what you have now, this awareness you have now into that next chapter? What do you see? Like, what does it mean to move back to New York for you right now? So after the work thing that happened, because it's pretty drastic, Mm. I went on leave and I took a road trip back to New York. Mm. I bought a car and just drove cross country. Mm. (laughs) Went back to New York and it just felt like home. Mm. All the noise. San Francisco has been in lockdown pretty much the whole, you know, hibernation. A lot of people have left San Francisco. So at night, it's been like weird to navigate people wearing masks, all of that. And San Francisco's a a town, you know, it's not a city. Mm. So in New York, when I drove in, just like all the noise, Mm. all the commotion, Mm. the subway, like people still riding it. Mm. I know there's still a pandemic happening, but Mm. that's where I want to be. You know, I was just like home. Like, why did I leave home? Mm. Obviously, lessons learned, but Mm. I was just like, wow, this feels like home. This is where my people are, where I don't have to fit in. Mm. You know, I can just be and do whatever. Mm. My mom is still in New York, Mm. and it's weird for her to think that I'm coming back Mm. because I think she thinks, like, you're making it. Like, why are you coming back this way? Oh. But that's a separate thing. But yeah. Since I drove in, I've just been like eyes on New York. I need to prioritize myself, you know, and San Francisco is not, not the place. Mm. So right now I'm envisioning, I'm going to start a coaching kind of business uh, for queer POC. Mm. And my strength is like connections, networking and stuff like that mm. and resources. So my hope is that I'll do this like leadership or coaching kind of thing and hopefully inspire other people to like, not strive to fit in, mm. you know, to really be your true self and bring all your identities, all your pieces, you know, of the puzzle. That's what I'm envisioning. Mm. I'm working for myself, you know, like, and community in a different way, right? Totally. Uh, not to be dependent on uh, a mission or whatever. Mm. How exciting. Oh, and sounds so meaningful, both to you and also just to the collective, that type of work. Cool. I want to keep chatting with you all day, but I'm also sensitive to your time. But I guess I'm curious, like, what was that like for you to kind of go back through your story in this way? Well, I took some notes because I knew that I wanted to hit some things. Yeah. Um, I did cry a little bit. Yeah. Because like, I love my godfather, mm. but that was like the first time I heard faggot. Mm. So I was like, oh, he's so good. But he said his word, right? Yeah. I have to think that people want the best in you, mm. right? oh, maybe I do have something else mm. to kind of share. Mm-hmm. So I met this person that I had a relationship with in San Francisco. Mm. And it was very nice because he was also Latino. Mm. So when we were good, it was great. You know, families met. I think at that point, my mom saw me a little bit more. You know, mm. like, wow, he, he can love, I don't know, whatever those things are, right? Mm. Uh, like he's full human. He can experience these things. Yeah. Like he can also get married. Um, so I think that she saw me a little bit more for myself. And then we broke up. Mm. And I think that she even saw me more because she saw, you know, the breakup, the, the heartache, right. all that stuff. Right. But in her own way, she's like, look at me. I'm not married. 
you'll get used to it. Oh. <laughs> Her tough love. Oh. oh, I mean, yeah, that sounds complicated because on one side, like being in this relationship and the whole journey of like being in it and then the heartbreak allowed your mom to see you as this more embodied full adult who feels and can be in relationship and connected and can kind of perhaps, I don't know if these were things she, you never felt like she saw you as before or whatever, like, but it sounds like you had her be able to see you in a more full way, but then it sounds like kind of her own whatever around, okay, but you don't need that. <laughs> yeah. That's, I feel like, Ooh, that's complicated. Both of those are there. Yeah. Uh-huh. For me, it was interesting to, it was my first Latino that I dated also. Oh yeah. What was that like? It was great. Because I didn't have to explain things. I didn't have to, yeah. like, we just got it. You know, some things we just got. Mm. Yeah. So we would bond over some things, you know. So it was a great experience overall, you know, in mm. uh, development. Because I was telling you how the community and my work, how in my mm. head I would create a barrier that way or some kind of, you know, mm. just a uh, difference. Mm. And I'm like, oh, there are Latinos like mm. me, you know, that, or people that I can, you know. So that was great to kind of realize and, feel more part of my community that way. Yeah, totally, totally. I'm picturing kind of teenage you sitting kind of next to you right now and just really curious about the similarities and perhaps differences or the blocks or whatever. And I'm curious, like when you think about you as a teenager in your first adolescence versus you now, I also see there's also been like this arc of almost like returning more to yourself, right? I'm just curious, like, what do you see when you look at kind of you then to you now? Yeah, the system's just, like, messed me up. <laughs> Fuck, yeah. Yeah. Now I'm relearning how to be that kid again, you know? I was the kid who talked back, for example. Mm. I would always talk back, partially because I'm impulsive. You know, it's mm. a behavioral thing. And mm. I would get beat, mm. like, silenced, right? Um, mm-hmm. Same thing, system, right? Silenced, uh my identities, different parts of them. Uh, mm. And now I'm returning with like my full self that I was, that I've always had uh, and not being afraid of. Obviously the safety thing is a, is a thing, but just like not being afraid of, you know, taking that leap like I'm doing back to New York, just taking care of myself, you know? Yeah, awesome. Well, Narisa, this has been such a pleasure and honor to get to hear your story and connect with you in this way. And I just want to really offer my gratitude to you kind of coming on and contributing your story to this collective work. This podcast really just like all about conversations on queerness and identity. And like the ultimate goal for all of us is to find that same sense of both like returning to who we were underneath all the shit that other systems (laughs) and culture and things have put on top of us, like that stripped away our trueness from us. And, and I just so appreciate you being a part of this work and uh, just thank you so much for coming on today. And if folks wanted to follow up with you after listening to your story, what's a good place to direct them? If you'd like them to be able to connect with you or reach out to mm, you. Probably my Instagram account. <laughs> Do you and want it, people to go to I'm that? Like, it's my true self. So cool. Yeah. That's what cool. I want people to see. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And what's your Instagram? Uh, so social, as in social and art, artivista, which is art like activism, activist kind of thing. And I guess you'll put it in a podcast. You got it. I'll link to that for sure. Awesome. Mm. Well, this was so nice to connect. And again, thank you for 
saying yes to this random stranger on the internet who said like, hey, do you want to come talk about your story and your life? And it was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, thanks for joining us for today's conversation. Feel free to head on over to secondadolescencepod.com for show notes and more. And you can connect further by following the show on Instagram at, at secondadolescencepod. If you're interested in being a future guest on the show and you want to come on and share about your own second adolescence, visit secondadolescencepod.com slash be a guest and you can submit your interest there. All right, that's it for me for now. Whether it's morning, afternoon, night, wherever we're finding you in your day, go on out there and keep doing things that would make younger you absolutely thrilled. That is what it's all about. Mm. All right, take good care. <laughs>